come before you again in the fear of the Lord and I want to greet you all in Jesus' name. Um, I want to start off with a story. We, we have two dogs and they, they don't have any conscience. Um, we, my children love dogs. If it was my choice, we would have none or one, but they, they, we have two dogs and they, they're greedy for food. If um, our children have tantalized them, and they've got them to the point where they'll jump and spring three or four feet off the ground to get some food that they drop into their mouth. And no conscience, they, they live that way. They'll, they'll go after what is offered to them. And tonight we want to look at the subject of mastering temptations. You know, each of us live in a body of clay and we need to deal with temptations that come to us and we're creatures of choice. And not only are we creatures of choice, but we have a flawed nature, a natural bent that is toward evil. The possibility is always there that we can uh, fall into a disaster of our own making. And in the lives of the children of Israel, we've seen this pattern over and over in the Old Testament scriptures. The, Lord's would, work, the Lord would work miracles on their behalf mind-boggling miracles, um, such as, you know, a river that would part, part apart and allow a number of great, great number of people to pass through. And yet at the next turn, when things went wrong, they would turn against God. And so they fell into a disaster of their own making. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I would like to read verse 13 to start off with here. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So that's, that's the text I would like to use for this evening. Um, there's no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man. Um, last Sunday, in our Sunday school lesson, I... I believe it was the last lesson we're having on Ephesians, the question was asked, where does the power come from? And that's an important question, and it's one that's certainly worthy of a lot of uh, contemplation. Where does the power come from to live an overcoming life? And I'm not going to answer it right now. Notice here that God is faithful. That's part of the answer. He's made a way of escape. He's not tempted above what we're able um, so think about those things a little bit. Temptations are common to man. This verse is very valuable to us as Christians. It tells us some aspects about temptations and how we can relate to them and God's point or God's angle of it. Um, it tells us that we're not alone when we're faced with temptation. So that's an important point that we need to think about. God's help is sufficient to get us through and it can keep and help us and enable us. And if we fail, it mostly reflects on us. So there was something that we didn't do that was our part to do. So I'd like to look at this first uh, 13 verses here, or 14 verses here of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and read them and then take some thoughts from these for the sermon tonight. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my beloved, our dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. As I thought about these verses and reflected on them, it seemed to me like, temptations came into focus. And instead of temptations that coming to, come to us uh, sort of a hit or miss thing, it's, there's, I believe there are, um, we're confronted with temptations that maybe could be grouped into categories. And we notice that everyone has to deal with them. Um, you know, it's something that we all relate to. And as we grow into Christian life and become more committed and deeper maybe those temptations aren't quite as strong as what they are at an earlier stage in the Christian walk. But we still need to deal with them. And in this passage, I think the impression that I would get is that we see how serious life is and how much our decisions, have much weight they really have. As we look here in the first four verses, we notice that the people of Israel were a people of privilege. And, you know, Israel had been delivered from, God, or from Israel by God by a mighty hand. And it's the same way we as Christians are delivered from sin through the work of Jesus. And it lists here some of the uh, blessed experiences that they had in that uh, as they lived there through the grace of God. We notice here in these first couple verses that it says, um, first of all, that we're not ignorant. In other words, we know these stories how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and then all passed through the sea. And of course, that's referring back to the time of Moses and the deliverance from the land of Egypt and how that they had guidance by the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. In other words, they had the presence of God, the leadership of Jesus, you might say, in their life. And they were, uh, had that blessing and they all passed through the sea. And I've already referred to that, how that the sea parted and they went through on dry ground and that when the Egyptians essayed to do so the chariot wheels started coming off and all sorts of things started happening and the waters closed in over them and I don't know how many observers might have been on the bank on the the Egyptian side I know the Israelites were on their side observing and maybe the Egyptians were too and surely to unbelievers it was tremendous a uh, message was given there of the power of God, undeniable. No way they could have bypassed that God, somebody over and above a natural occurrence, was working here. 
And as we think about it, that was a blessing that they had. And it goes on and said they uh, ate that same spiritual meat and drank of that spiritual drink. They drank of that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so Jesus was present in that situation there. Um, and I believe this encapsulates what's involved in a Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is being described here. Leadership by God and Jesus and the infilling of his spirit. And it says they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they, uh, they had tremendous blessings here. And as we think about these blessings that they had, as I said, it's the essence of the Christian life that's being described here leadership of God, and help and enablement from him through the power of his spirit. But here, then we notice the purpose of it here in the first part of verse 1. I would not have you to be ignorant. You know, the Apostle Paul wanted the Christian church there in the, or the Corinthians to know, and I believe that we need to know this today. It's for our, writing, our learning that these things were written. Uh, he wanted us to reflect on and to realize that walking with God and having had good spiritual experiences and even having been the recipient of extraordinary miracles is no guarantee of success in the Christian life. And so as we think about this, it's sobering that, you know, the final goal is to depart life faithful. And do we have what it takes to maintain the walk with God on a consistent basis along and along. Israel had been delivered from Egypt by the power of God, just as the Christian believer has been redeemed from sin. And God wants us to know about this story. Israel had this tremendous experience. They were a people of privilege. God was on their side, and they were truly a blessed people as he worked on their behalf. But we notice here then going on in the verse 5 that it says, With many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You know, how could this be? Um, how could they have, after all of this blessing on their life, how could, how could it happen? But we might ask the same question today. How can a person who has walked with God and been faithful to the church for 10 or 20 or 30 years walk away and start making excuses and change their path in life and fall out of, fall away from God. Um, you know, I think that we always need to balance our lives with caution, that temptations never leave us and the potential is always there. Um, we never get to the point where we're free of temptation and the possibility of failure. And we notice, we know the story. It's not given here in great detail, but all the, all the men, Jewish men, that were 20 years of old, of age and up, that came out of the land of Egypt, perished and never in the wilderness and never got into the land of Canaan. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the rest of them died in the wilderness during their years of wandering. And let's flip to Numbers chapter 14, and I'll notice a couple verses here that help bring out some of these points here. Numbers 14, beginning to read in verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, 
But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. As we notice this uh, summary here of what happened, why Moses had prayed for his people that God wouldn't just wipe them out. You know, God was ready to just wipe them off, and he proposed to Moses, I'll make another nation out of your posterity. And Moses pled with God and besought him for the sake of the people of Israel. And God then, this is his summary then, said, I pardon according to your word. But he pronounced this judgment that all those that were 20 years of age and older, or maybe it was older than 20 years of age, um, they, um, they were not going to get into the land of Canaan. And so as we think about this, why uh, the people had gone against God 10 times, it said, and in this final display of lack of faith here, when they heard of the evil report of the ten spies, God pronounced judgment. And he lessened it at Moses' prayer and from instant death to natural death over the next period of years. The basic sentence, however, remained that you'll not enter into the promised land. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 now, verse 5, it says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And we might ask, what does this have to do with us? Well, we've noticed before that they all were baptized and all were made partakers of that spiritual rock, Christ. And this tells us that people that have taken the necessary steps to be saved and to yield their lives to the Lord and who are made partakers of the grace of our Lord Jesus may come to the point that they would abuse those privileges to the point and grieve the Spirit of God and so fall from their state of grace and perish everlastingly. And we can know that this will happen to us if we walk carelessly. And let's look to uh, Revelation chapter 3, and I'd like to read a verse there, and then we'll move on to a couple other verses. Um, think about that it, the possibility of falling is always present. Um, here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his book out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so, I'm sort of reading between the lines there, but actually taking it backwards, it says, If you overcome, you'll be clothed in white raiment, and I won't blot your name out. So taking it the opposite way, if you don't overcome, and you're not clothed in that white raiment that uh, washed in the blood of Jesus and the sins being cleansed away and taken as far as the east is from the west, then you are in the position where your name will be blotted out. And so, um, you know, that's, that's sobering, and it's something for us to think about. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll notice also several verses there. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 8, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of the temptation of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. 
Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we have this warning here where it says, again, sort of um, elaborating on what happened there in the Old Testament episode there at the uh, sea as they were leaving out of Egypt. But it says, harden not your hearts. It's being a warning, a warning that is being given to people that are committed to God and that are serving him to be careful, to maintain that softness of heart and yearning of spirit for the ways of God in our life. Don't harden your heart. They tempted me and, and I judged them for it. And so looking then at verse 12 and 13 again, then uh, take heed lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in turning away from the living God, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And you know, there's a lot that is tied up there in that last phrase, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, someone has described it like boiling a frog in a pot. You know, if we start dabbling with it a little bit, why, it, little by little by little, we can get deeper and deeper and deeper, and before we know it, we're so entangled that we can't get loose. And back to the frog in the pot, they say that you can put a frog in cold water and it'll be content to stay there and slowly heat it up and you can boil that frog to death and it'll never hardly know the difference. And that's the way the deceitfulness of sin works. And so it, it offers one anecdote there. It says, exhort one another, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Back in First uh, Corinthians now, Chapter 10, verse 6, it says, These things are given for an example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted after. And let's think about lust. You know, we oftentimes would think of lust in the terms of morality. You're lusting after something. But I believe there's a much broader de definition here for this word lust. And it's especially brought out as we look at the episode in the Old Testament that he was referring to. As we look at what they were wanting when they were guilty of lusting, it really brings this out. And let's flip back to Numbers chapter 11, and I'll read a couple verses there. And, you know, I could do a lot of reading tonight, but for the sake of time, I'll read just a couple verses here and there that sort of summarize a lot of what happened. And here in Numbers chapter 11 beginning to read in verse 4, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the flesh which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. All right, think for a moment. What were they lusting after? And as I thought about that, why, it was perfectly legitimate things in another setting. Um, you know, we, we all eat things like this. Meat and fish and garden produce and onions and melons, it says. Who, who doesn't like a good watermelon? Um, 
But when those things are denied of us by the will and hand of God, and we are determined to have them, we're falling into a, a slippery slope. It's at a bad spot. And so uh, perfectly legitimate things in another setting become evil when they are deprived of us through the hand of God, or as God would withhold them from us. They lusted when they were discontented with what God had provided. And you know, they had the manna, uh, a heavenly food, and it was a provision of God. It met their physical needs, and apparently it got boring to them. They started to think about variety. You know, if we could just have some meat and sink our teeth into a cool melon, then maybe they cooled it off in the river water or something, and had a little onion to spice things up. And the list goes on there of what they were, were to use the biblical terminology, lusting after. Um, and so I might ask a question tonight. How do God's provisions for your life rate in your estimation? With the circumstances of your life, and you believe that God has placed you where you are and given you the circumstances that you're a part of, are you grateful to God for those circumstances? Are you content? Are you seeking God's help for less than ideal circumstances? And we all have them in one form or another. And you know, there's two, res two basic responses when we, things seem to be coming up less than what is desirable. And that is that we can be thankful for God for what, to God for what he does give to us, or we can complain when all we get is manna, even though the manna is a gift from God in and of itself. You know, it's human nature. We have our ideals of what would be great for our life. And often, always, all of us have something that is not quite stacking up in that way. And we have to choose what, what we are, how we are going to respond to that. You know, the American way that is taught through schooling and such like, and it's the basis of this nation is that we can pursue light, life and liberty and happiness. And we, we like that, but the reality of life is that it doesn't always come to us just in that package. And things come our way that's less than ideal. These murmuring rebellious Israelites were severely punished and it says this is for our example that we would be grateful to God for his provisions for our life. Let's turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, beginning to read in verse 13, said, They soon forgot his works and waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their souls. All right, I ask in the beginning, where's the power come from? Here's one of the keys, being grateful to God for his provisions for us. It says, if you, um, if you lust exceedingly and tempt God, that he'll send leanness to your soul. If you want to grow into Christian life, that's one of the keys of power, being great, grateful, being thankful to God for whatever he has provided to you. And it doesn't mean that we can't um, have a forward look in life and try to better our circumstances or seek a wife or whatever the case might be. You know, God has given us all those things, but sometimes things are denied us.
and we need to be grateful to God. And if we don't, we can about expect we'll get leanness of soul. So, um, where does power come from? It's from, first of all from being grateful to God. And, you know, our spouses, our parents, our whatever we might have as far as provisions in our life, we need to be thankful for. Flipping back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we notice in verse 7 it says, Neither be ye idolaters. And, you know, we could think, oh, not a, not a problem. You know, idols, we don't bow down and worship idols. But, you know, there's a lot of things that can take first place in ahead of God. And I think we need to contemplate whether God has supreme and first place in our life's experience. Is he the one that is calling the shots? Is he the one that we bow down and worship and only serve? Um, you know, let's flip to Luke chapter 14, and we'll notice a couple of verses here that help to amplify some of these thoughts. Uh, Luke chapter 14, beginning to read in verse 26. I'm sorry, I'm in the book of John. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we notice here that it says, if you don't hate everything else, and I think we need to put that into context. You know, we're not asked to have a hatred for those around about us. We're supposed to love our families and love our church friends and love our brethren and sisters in the church. But I like to use the illustration of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. It says in the scripture that um, Rachel he loved and Leah he hated. But if you think about the context there, why he didn't kick Leah out of the house and have nothing to do with her. He, uh, he provided for her. He, he, bore children with her and things. So I like to say that this means that love less. Love less. Whosoever doesn't love his family and his brethren and his own life less than me cannot be my disciple. Because we think about it, um, you know, it's possible to have be an idolater in the New Testament age without having any kind of an idol that we bow down to or anything else. Some, it's easy for things to ease ahead of God having first place in our life. And it's important that we recognize that. Our love for Christ and our obedience to his word needs to have first place in our life, absolute first place. Um, there was a man named Jacob Hostetler in near Charlottesville, Pennsylvania. I don't know how many of y'all have been up there. There's a place called Roadside America up there that you can go through, and it has miniature towns and railroad tracks and all kinds of other things, and it's a really interesting place. As far as I know, it's still open. They have, uh, you go in there, and the lights and trains are running and things, and at night, the, or they have a nighttime where the lights are dimmed, and the lights from the displays are all that is lit up. But right in the edge of that property is where Jacob Hostetler and his family were in a log cabin, and the Indians attacked. And as the story goes, he had a couple uh, upper teenage boys, and they had hunting rifles. They, they hunted meat to live with. 
And it, the story goes that those young teenagers begged their dad to get those rifles down and start picking off those Indians. And he, he refused, and they, they didn't. And the Indians lit the cabin on fire, and they went down in the basement, and they had barrels of apple cider down there that they had gotten out of their apple orchard and crushed and got the juice from it. And they took rags or clothing or something and dipped in that cider and wet the bottom of the upper floorboards to keep the fire from coming down on them. And eventually the fire smoldered and went out. And evening was approaching and the Indians left, or so they thought, and they started creeping out of a hole out of the cellar wall and there was one Indian up there that was still nibbling off the apples in their orchard and he spied them and yelled. The Indians came back and a number of that family was killed and uh, the rest of them went into captivity for a few years. And the story goes that one of those older boys that survived years later said, if my dad would have just let us use those rifles, I know we could have all escaped and made it. But you know, Jacob Hostetler, um, in keeping his rifles on the, on the wall and allowing the Indians to work havoc in his family, exhibited that he put this scripture into practice, that he loved God first. God and his principles are going to reign in my life, and I'll never break them for anything. And that's an important aspect to have. Is God and his word the supreme thing in your life? Um, is God reigning supreme? You'll not break a principle for anything. That's, that's important. Looking here now in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10. It says, Neither commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. And the case that refers to here in Israelite history is that in Numbers 25. Uh, in Num Numbers 24, Balak, an enemy, tried to get Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. And Balaam asked of God, and he was apparently kind of a weaselly creature himself, but he blessed them in his prophecies. And yet in chapter 25, we see that the Israelite men were joining to evil Moabite women in immoral relations. And... Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, and here in verse 14, it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And so we're given this insight here into what happened back there, that even though Balaam wouldn't curse Israel, why uh, he gave him some advice to just you can you can you can work on them another way, subtle means. Just get them to uh, associate with them Moabite women, and and they'll they'll fall. They'll never make it. What you want to achieve will happen. And as we we think about our day, we're bombarded in the area of morality, and we don't know what might be going on behind the scenes in the unseen spiritual realms whether it's a specific action or concentrated effort on the part of evil beings such as Satan and his angels, or whether this is a natural course of events, we don't really know. But as in Moses' day, as well as our own, the opportunity is always there to violate God's moral code. And God had 23,000 men killed of the Israelite 
family that day because of them um, violating the moral code that God had set up for them in order to turn the fierce anger of God away from Israel. And God still hates this sin even in our day. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, and I'll read one verse there. Probably most of you could quote this by heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And you know, in our day, we're being bombarded in the area of morality. You know, in the New Testament, things were actually tightened up a whole lot more, as I said the other night. And, you know, in the Old Testament, if a person did the physical act, they were considered immoral. But in our day, God, Jesus said, if you think the thought, you've committed adultery with the, a woman already. And, you know, we have this scourge of blessing and scourge in combination of the Internet and the filth that is so available there. And, you know, it used to be many years ago that if you wanted to view some sort of trash, that you had to go somewhere and get a magazine and actually possess it. And, you know, I've, I don't have any experience with it myself, thank God, but I've heard of people hide it under their bed mattress and all types of things in order to try to get some trash of that sort that they could view whenever they got an opportunity. Then in our day, it's accessible. You know, you can be in the corner of your bedroom or in your car off somewhere and scroll something and it's it's there and it's available and I think that we need to guard sharply against this thing and never never fall recognizing that um, looking at some of that kind of stuff is as bad as committing the sin of immorality physically let's turn to uh, well let me look here at verse 9 yet before we move to this other passage where it says Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So let's turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, beginning to read in verse 1. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. 
And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. As we think about tempting Christ, it says they spake against God and against Moses. Um, you know, maybe this is sort of along the same line of what I talked a while ago about being content with uh, God's provisions for us. Um, you know, in this setting, why things had happened and they were discouraged, it said. And, you know, when, when things go against us in one form or another, why, you know, then's when discouragement sets in. And then's when we're on the start of a slippery slope where hard choices need to be make, made of how we're going to respond to this situation. Never blame God. Never accuse Christ. It's very important. Never tempt Christ, as it says here. Flipping back now to verse 10 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. It says, Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and were destroyed, of the destroyer. And I believe that's referring to the episode in Numbers chapter 16. I should have told you to keep your finger there in where we were in Numbers. A couple books ahead of that, we have the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And here again, for the sake of time, I'll read just a very few verses. Let's look first of all at verse 41 of Numbers 16. And it says, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And now let's read verse 49. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And so, like I said, I'm not reading a lot of verses there. I'll try to fill in the detail. And most of y'all probably know this story, at least to a degree, uh, there were three men that were discontented with what, the way Moses was leading. And as I said, it was Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they complained about Moses and their circumstances. And let's, let's look at the type of men these were. Here in chapter 16, verse 2, it tells who, who they were. And it says, now they, rose up, now they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now think about that for a minute. These, these ringleaders in this rebellion, you know, they weren't the bad boys that were hanging in the shadows and muttering. They were the up, outstanding ones, the men of power and influence who said, your leadership is too repressive and we, we are tired of this. We can do better than this. And as the story went, the three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, were swallowed up in the earth. And these 250 men of renown that it refers to here were burned up of fire. And there were many others, it said, were destroyed in the plague. And so to murmur is a serious thing. And it's something that we all contend with, you know. What do we do when things don't go our way? And we need to decide and choose Flipping back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, we come down to the, some of the summary now. Uh, now these, all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
And so we see that these stories aren't given just to scare people, but they're given for admonition and for warning, it says here. They're examples. And in verse 12 then, we see that no one is exempt from falling. It says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But in verse 13 then we notice that there's a way that God is faithful and opportunities abound to uh, turn away from sin. Sin is always present with us, but God is faithful. There's a way of escape. We're able to bear it. Someone has said, and I quote, that our security as far as relates to God consists of faith. And as it relates to ourselves, falling back on Monday night, consists in fear. Recognize we're fallible and finite, but God is holy and righteous and has all the power. And as we focus on him, that these earthly temptations that we are beset with take their perspective and we can come out at the right place. Second Peter 2, it says, God knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Again, the opposite of what we looked at a while ago, that if you, um, I forget the exact context of that verse there where it said that um, God will, oh, he will send you leanness of soul if you turn away from God. And so, you have two choices. You can either turn away from God and receive leanness of soul, or you can strive to be godly and surrender to God, and he knows how to deliver us. Let's turn to James chapter, two, chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 4, or 2 rather, I'm sorry. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then again, read verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So we see here that the man that is able to endure will be blessed. And it is, as we've, fall into diverse temptations is counted all joy. And, you know, that's not a natural thing. You know, we, we'd like an easy life. We said, you know, if I could just wake up in the morning and it would just come natural to do all the right things. But it says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And, it, you know, God's economy is so opposed to what's natural to us. You know, in another place it says, suffer joyfully the spoiling of your goods. It's not natural. We, we like the, the things we've worked for and that we possess and that we likely need. We like to maintain control of. But here it says, when you fall into temptations, in other words, if temptations come to you, joy in God. And that's, that's part of where the power comes from. Where does the power come from? It's through faith. It's through rejoicing when we feel like we're being beset with something that is not ideal for us. Um, and then in verses 5 to 7 here, we're given some solution also. It says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that given to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. And so if there's circumstances coming your way, and you think that 
you know, you don't hardly know how to handle it. Here it says, you can ask of God and he won't chew you out. It says he upbraideth not. You know, you can come before God in trembling and reverence and awe and say, I need your help. I'm not capable to run through this course on my own. And would you please give me the wisdom? Ask God for wisdom. Ask him for his wisdom and his discernment and his approach to life. And it will, says he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. And he won't even cast you a withering glance, you might say, in the process. And so the mastery of self is so important for Christians. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And it's up to us to avail ourselves of that power to get uh, the victory. We think about um, more ways that are out there to give us the power. Why, it's denial of self is one of them. You know, um, someone has said, and it's very true, that we need to have a larger purpose for denial of self or else it becomes repressive. You know, if you're only looking to, I've, gotta, I've got, to, got to do this, I need to do this, I need to deny myself. But if you can plug in behind the purpose of honoring God and Jesus, it, it changes the perspective tremendously. God is in control of the earth, and as we walk in his footsteps, we and have that as our goal and our overriding vision, well then, Denying of self all of a sudden takes the right perspective, and it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor, and it, there's blessing in it. Um, these folks in the Old Testament, they, uh, they wanted carnal physical pleasures and fulfillment, and they wanted to be in charge of their own life and in, of their destiny, but it didn't pan out well for them. And so as we think about this, again, are God's provisions for my life adequate for me? Am I contented? Am I seeking God's way? The temptation is always there to long for what we would see as greener grass on the other side of the fence. Can we see it that to complain is to actually blame God for what he may be withholding from me? Am I committed to God first? Are his principles so sacred that I would never violate them regardless of what it costs me? God expects us to hold him in first place. And in the area of physical pleasures, am I committed to only experiencing those that are scripturally lawful? What our eyes observe and what the thoughts of our heart think, um, what we actually touch is talked about in great detail in the Bible. And how we obey these concepts is of great interest to God. And he's watching and then thinking also about blaming maybe those who are over us, government or leaders of some form or another for our lot in life. It's, it's not the way to be doing it. Contrary of what the Israelites bitterly voiced, they wouldn't have been better off if they'd have stayed in Egypt. They were much better off if they'd have plugged themselves into the process there, put their shoulder to the wheel and said, we're gone to Canaan, and went ahead and did what it took and said, Moses, what can we do here? How about, can we get some water here this morning? We're, things are a little lean. And, you know, it would have went so much better, and they'd have passed over there rather quickly, probably. But it wasn't the case. And so the issue of temptations comes down to one common point. 
Is my commitment to God and march toward Zion the most important thing in my life? Am I interested in serving God to the point that will quietly submit my will and subject my way to what he wants for me? And as we do that, the blessing comes. The mastery of self under God's direction and with his help enables us to live as we ought.